This is Suzanne York from Humans Optimized. We believe that advances in technology, coupled with elevated human skills, create immense opportunity in the future of work. Now, with the upheaval of COVID-19, our future has quickly become today's reality. Through the uncertainty, fear, and concern of the pandemic, we find stories of human resilience, innovation, and hope. Join us as we share our experiences, discuss what may be ahead, and explore together how we can come back stronger than we were before. Teamwork in stable periods can be both exhilarating and challenging. Now, during the global pandemic, teams are faced with the dual challenge of needing to solve hard problems while having to work apart. Well before COVID-19 was on anyone's radar, author and speaker Mike Robbins set out to capture the elements that create high-performing teams. In his latest book that was recently published and so perfectly titled for this time, we're all in this together, creating a team culture of high performance, trust, and belonging. I'm so excited and honored to talk with Mike today in what I know will be an incredible conversation. Mike, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, hey, you're welcome. Thanks for having me, Suzanne. I'm excited to be here and good to connect with you and everybody listening. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we span the coasts. I'm over here in Boston and you're out on the West Coast. How are things there? You know, I mean, it's one of the weirdest disconnects of this whole thing for me is like I step outside of our house. We live a little north of San Francisco in Marin County in the Bay Area. And most days it's like it's a beautiful day and the birds are chirping and I go for a walk. And it's like if I didn't if I didn't think about the fact or see people wearing masks or whatever, I would be like, yeah. it's just a normal day. It's all good. And then I remember like, oh, yeah. It's a pandemic, geez, you know, so it's (laughs) it's kind of a, you know, there's just the cognitive dissonance of watching the news and knowing the reality of what's going on. And then, you know, my daily experience as impacted as it is being at home, um, when I walk outside or just look around, you know, life seems pretty good. So that part's a little weird among many other weird parts of this whole thing. I know, it's so true. Well, and in New England, we have not had the greatest weather. And so this weekend, we finally had gorgeous um, temperatures mm. and the sun was out. And it just lifted everybody's spirits, even though yeah. we're still just high-fiving virtually across the, the street. Right, right. <laughs> just to, to have some fresh air to breathe. So we're feeling a little bit more renewed coming out, out of this weekend, at least. Yeah. Well, and I also think it's like, I've been feeling more settled and sort of surrendered to this bizarre experience and more unsettled at the same time just by the length of it and the severity of it and the impact of it so it's that's also weird kind of the emotional roller coaster of the whole thing like i don't feel like i'm resisting it as much as i was in the first few weeks when i still couldn't even actually believe it was happening but yet at the same time i think as the reality sets in of what this all means still not knowing how long it lasts and where it all goes but just you know it's 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 both kind of more normal and more abnormal at the same time, if that makes sense. Oh, it totally does. And if I look and observe sort of my own reactions over these, well, we're at, in week eight here. Mm-hmm. Um, it has it has been interesting to get to know myself a little bit more yeah. in terms of my reactions to things. And at first, I was so gung-ho, created lots of structure for the kids and <laughs> followed it almost to a T. And it worked for about three days. Yes. <laughs> and then we just needed to loosen up a little bit in order to you know let the house be messier or let the kids have a, a little more time playing instead of mm-hmm. <clears throat> trying to be too formal about it. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes I feel great and we've got this covered. And other times I'm thinking, I can't do this for eight more weeks. So <sighs> it is a roller yeah. coaster. Well, and I think, you know, 
I, I, I concur with that and have had a similar experience. I think it's a good lesson for so on so many levels, but like having a plan can be helpful and then adjusting that plan as we go, especially when it's a plan that we didn't know we had to plan, you know, starting this year. Um, I saw, I saw a great meme on Facebook a couple weeks ago. It said, Hey, 2020, none of this was on my vision board. <laughs> like what so is true. going on? You know, that I think, I mean, that's part of, of the many things that are so bizarre about this experience. It was like, none of us planned for this. None of us knew this was coming, expected it, thought about it, had any real contingency plan for something like this. That yeah. even if you had, if I had tried to explain this to you as a phenomenon five, six months ago, like the concept of a global pandemic, I think most, oh yeah, that, or if there's an outbreak, but like, no, no, like you're going to have to stay home mm-hmm. and not go anywhere and your kids are going to be home and like everyone's going to be not able to, you know, you have to wear a, like, it, I, I don't even know that I would have been able to fully understand it, the the impact and, right? And right, then it would have sounded like a script to a movie, not, totally. not our lives. <laughs> right. And, and, and I think at the same time, there's also understanding how adaptable we are and how resilient we are. Um, yet at the same time, one of the practices for me that's been challenging but super important is like, okay, can I stay in the present moment right here, right now? Like I'm having a conversation with you. That's what's happening right now. And I'm fine. And then when we get done with this, I have another thing. And then another thing, it's just like, stay in the moment, do the next right thing that's in front of me. And as someone who's, you know, spent a good part of my life, my wife's this way too, being a planner and wanting to have some sense of certainty of what comes next and where do we go from here? It's like crazy making yet at the same time, I think it's a really important skill for all of us to develop an even stronger muscle around being in the present moment and embracing uncertainty. Because it kind of always exists in life. We just operate with some illusion that it doesn't. Well, that's true. And and we can bypass a lot of the concerns around it because we can go on autopilot or right. you know, do the things we've always been doing. It's true. Absolutely. Yeah. And speaking of doing all the things that you're normally doing, you're you're a speaker who's out there with uh, clients and in-person <laughs> engagements and on yep. the go all the time. Talk about a, a real shift in your 2020 for sure. Absolutely. You know, we were talking about this before we hit record on the podcast, but we've had about 30 events that got canceled or postponed or rescheduled or moved around in my, you know, the last 20 years, Suzanne, I've basically been, you know, I'm a, I'm a professional speaker. I mean, you know, my consulting business and what we do has other aspects to it, but that's pretty much, you know, I do about 80 or 90 speaking engagements a year. About half of them are here locally in the Bay area because we have a lot of clients in Silicon Valley and in the tech world. And other local businesses, just because this is where I grew up and this is where I've, you know, spent my whole life. So I have a lot of connections here and there's a lot happening here, but you know, the other half of the events are out in Boston or in Chicago or in London or wherever. And, um, so on the one hand, it's been super weird and scary and disorienting and, you know, quite frankly, a huge challenge for me personally and for our team and the business. Cause it's like, oop, all of that stopped. And, we're not booking any more, you know, in-person speaking engagements because no one knows when those are going to come back. And yet one of the many things that's been really interesting, it's like spending time at home with my wife, Michelle, and with our daughters, Samantha and Rosie, who are 14 and 11. I probably haven't been home straight for, you know, the last trip I took. I had a trip to San Diego on March 5th. It was a day trip. So I just flew down and flew right back up that night. Um, and I, like, I can't remember, you know, this two straight months of zero yeah. travel. Maybe that's happened a handful of times. But even with that, it would be like I had a ton of local events and I was sort of here, there and everywhere. But like, you know, 
So that's been actually kind of sweet and and really yeah. interesting. And then also the pivoting of our business and having to look at, well, how do I and how do we still reach people and serve and connect with people in the virtual environment, in the digital environment, something that was, you know, I've done that over the last decade or so. Every now and again, someone will say, hey, can you just do this thing virtually or we're going to do this virtual meeting or, you know, can you do it from your office or from a hotel room? Oh, sure. You know, but that's like a couple times a year randomly out of the blue, which is kind of an anomaly now. It's like everything that I'm doing is on Zoom or Skype or WebEx or Microsoft Teams or Blue Jeans or whatever video platform it is and trying to, you know, facilitate leadership teams and workshops that way or, you know, deliver keynotes to, you know, people. It, it's it's just a very different thing and trying to embrace that and learn how to do that more effectively and then realize, oh, this is not this is both <laughs> now the exception and the rule yeah. all at once. And uh, this is how it's going to be for a while. So let's see if we can get used to it. Yeah. And what teams are going through right now and trying to recalibrate and refocus and restructure, it, they really need the messaging in your book now more than ever. And yet yeah. they are probably not able to take it in. So it's this this but this paradox of what you offer and where they are, there might be a little bit of a mismatch. A little bit. I mean, you and I were also talking a little bit earlier before we hit record about Maslow's hierarchy. And it's like, yeah. you think about Maslow's hierarchy, it's like, you know, start at the base level of physiological needs. Like, am I going to be physically okay? Which when there's a pandemic, obviously it would make sense that all of us would be thinking about our own health and well-being. And then the second level of Maslow's hierarchy is safety. Like, am I safe? Do I have a mm-hmm. job? Do I have food in the you know refrigerator? Can I can I fend for myself and my family? And those first two levels of Maslow's hierarchy, like you can't really focus on anything else if those two are it, if they're threatened significantly, because when you think of the third level as belonging, which is a lot of what my book and my work and you know teams coming together and really connecting and collaborating and creating that sense of community and culture that's necessary then to esteem, which is more about succeeding and being recognized for that success, to then self-actualization, which is the highest level of Maslow's hierarchy. My friend Chip Conley, who's written a bunch of great books, one of his books is called Peak, and it's the subtitle is How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow. And he Mm. wrote this book like, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago, and then did an an updated version of it a couple years back. But he basically takes Maslow's hierarchy and breaks it into three different levels. The, The base level is survival, the middle level is success, and then the top level is transformation. Mm -hmm. And what he talks about in that book and in his work is that like you always have to focus on as a business survival. If we can't survive, if we can't, right? And that's right now a lot of businesses are in, oh, we have to furlough people, we have to lay people off, we have to cut expenses, we have to figure out how we're making money in this environment. And that's a lot of the focus, but you can only focus on survival for so long to the point you either survive or you don't. And that's not a way to really be able to continue to to flourish and to thrive that second level of success is about you know again how do we grow how do we change how do we make some things happen so that we can grow the business and be more effective at what we're doing and how we're doing it but ultimately transformation is about like how do we do things new and different and innovative and and in some ways though when you think about right now all three of those levels are super important yeah. It just really depends on where are we focused individually, where is our team focused, where's the organization focused. And if we're primarily focused on survival, it would make sense. It's just we can't do that for months and years at a time. 
And if we're only focused on success, then we're just trying to like make the biggest profit we possibly can. And right, we've got to be able to get to some level of transformation. But again, sort of oscillating amongst those three levels is all happening at the same time right now. And sometimes the question becomes like, well, where do I put my focus? Yeah. And that that makes a lot of sense when people are trying to make sense of the changing world around them and not being connected to each other physically. Yeah. And needing to figure out, well, where am I? And then where are you? And how are right. we going to come together in this new way? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's bringing up, I think, a lot of things for us in terms of how we pay attention to ourselves and others. And a lot of the cues, you know, again, we're not used to being in this environment with this external circumstance that's so intense. And then the reality is like anything, people are reacting and responding very differently. And we're not together with each other in the way we normally are, where we can pick up on certain cues and visual cues and sort of an emotional sense and all of that. It's not impossible to do across a video screen or on a telephone, but it's not the same. Mm. Well, and you outline really four compelling pillars that, mm -hmm. regardless of whether you're in a pandemic or not, that are important <laughs> for teams um, to create the right culture. Yes. And and I shared with you uh, in our prep guide that number three is my favorite, so we can sit there for a little while once we get yeah, there. Sure. Um, but I think it would be helpful to talk about the four pillars, and then we can look at it through the lens of right now as well. Yeah. Uh, because if the teams had these in place, I'm sure they're they're doing really well. And if they haven't, there are ways you can cultivate them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think of it right now that, looks. I love the saying, circumstances don't define us, they reveal us. Mm. And that idea personally and collectively, that if we were doing work internally for ourselves, if we were doing work with our teams to really create as strong a culture as possible, it's not that this environment that we're in right now isn't going to challenge us. It is. But hopefully we've got some things within us personally and collectively that can strengthen us and we can lean on in the midst of this. If we weren't doing that work internally, personally, or collectively, this is going to really shine a lot of light on, wow, we got a ton of gaps here. Um, because even, look, even the best and strongest teams right now are struggling with some of this, just like most individuals. You know, the four pillars, the first one is about creating psychological safety, which, you know, essentially is group trust. There's a great mm. professor at Harvard Business School in your backyard there in in, in the Boston area. Yeah, she's Amy, amazing. Amy Edmondson, who I had a chance to actually talk to on my podcast last summer and her work, I mean, she's sort of the world's leading expert in psychological safety. And basically for the last couple of decades, she's been studying teams and groups. And this notion of psychological safety is that any group that we're a part of, if it's safe enough for us to take risks, to be ourselves, to make mistakes, to, you know, speak up, to be different and dissent and knowing I can do that and I'm not going to get shamed, ridiculed, you know, negatively, there's not going to be negative consequences in this. I mean, there's going to be accountability, of course, but it's not like you're going to get kicked out of the group because you simply had a different opinion or you tried something and you failed. Right. Um, that's what psychological safety is. It's more trust is more a one-to-one -one phenomenon. You and I either have trust with each other or we don't group trust or that psychological safety is how safe is the group for the people within the group to, you know, be themselves, be, uh, who they are, you know, take risks and such. And, and especially right now when people are feeling so, um, you know, disoriented and scared, understandably, it's really important for us to have that sense of, of psychological safety. 
And a lot of that is also cultivated by the the nonverbal cues that you get when yeah. you're talking with people and with the whole group. Like, what's the air? If can you read between the air right. among right. us? And not having that really does mean being more de- deliberate in this space. Absolutely. And and like, I mean, I just think about this even from a communication standpoint. Like being standing here in my office, where I often I can I lift up my desk and I stand up and I have this little light and I try to make this environment so it's like <laughs> as conducive to and I'm giving a presentation stand, staring into the little green light on top of my Mac where I'm supposed to look so it looks like I'm making eye contact with people, right? <laughs> yeah. But it's so bizarre because it's like, I you know, there's very little feedback, especially if I'm talking to a large group of people on Zoom or on Skype or whatever, right? Like, I, honestly, it's, I can't see people. I can't see their heads nodding. I can't know if they're laughing or not. And some of, you know what I mean? Like, even with the little videos or little windows of a lot of people, if they have their cameras, all this stuff, it's like, well, all, yeah. and that's just giving a presentation. That's not really being in a real relationship with someone, but it's like right. sitting in a group and having a discussion about what works, what doesn't work. Should we try something? Should we not try something? It's like, oh my goodness. Um, hard to do even when we're all together, even harder yes. to do when we're not together. Yes. Um, so making sure, but so part of what's necessary to create more psychological safety is the more authentic, the more real, the more vulnerable we're willing to be with each other, the more we build those kind of authentic relationships with each other, the more psychological safety the team will have. Well, and authenticity is taking on a new meaning in this time. Yes. You know, and leaders especially, they we, we don't know any more than each other. Mm-hmm. than anyone else does. And right. we're zooming into each other's living rooms and seeing right. each other's families and pets. So the real yeah. us is is having to come forward in this time. Totally. Well, and it's like, you know, you have a two-year-old and a five-year-old and it's like being yeah. on calls or Zoom call. And it's like, you know, the two-year-old screaming or the five-year-old needs something or what, you know, it's like, I mean, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, the day my book launched actually a couple of weeks back, you know, I'm in my office and I'm doing a bunch of interviews and I'm doing things and I'm all this stuff's going on. There's a lot happening. It's exciting. And I get this frantic text from Michelle, my wife, you come in, please quick, fast. And I come in and Rosie, our 11 year old had to give her oral report for her state report on New York that she'd been doing all year. This is like the biggest assignment in the fifth grade. Right. And she couldn't get on the zoom. Cause like, I don't know, dad, the link and the cling and the email and I can't find it. And she was, you know, nervous having to give yeah. this presentation. She's like set herself up in our bedroom is where she's decided to do some of her schoolwork, which is fine. And we're in there and, but she's like melting down and freaking out and Michelle's trying to help her and she can't, I'm trying to help her. And I'm, I've learned by the way, I'm a terrible it manager, right? I just <laughs> am not good at, especially when there's a problem and I can't figure it out. But it was like, you know, we figure it out finally after like 10 minutes and Rosie's sort of beside herself and we're trying to get her. So she and she's and Michelle and I like and then she's like, get away. I want to do it now. So we walk away and the two of us are almost in tears and we're like oh hugging God. each other. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to go back in my office for my book launch is way easier than this. Right. And right? It was just a funny moment of like, oh, my gosh, like, you know, and again, those types of things are happening all the time for us in the midst of this thing. And, yeah. you know, being able to be real with ourselves about it, not that we have to tell the story to every single person that we work with, but having a lot more space and compassion for ourselves and for each other that like everyone's carrying a different load right now. And it's definitely, whether it some might have it harder than others, like it's a heck of a lot different today than it was a couple months ago for every single person on the planet. 
Right. It's very true. And and I thought authenticity was hard in a more stable time. <laughs> yeah. You've always been incredible about bringing your whole self to the work that you do. What advice do you give to leaders in general about authenticity and how can they think about it now, whether it's something they do or say or approach it? I mean, look, I just think, look, everybody has their own level of comfort with how they show up in life. And it's different for each of us. I just think the more willing we are to lower the waterline on our iceberg, so to speak, is the metaphor that I use. The more liberated we are and the more permission it gives other people. Now, look, obviously there's things for us to keep private. There's things to be, you know, I mean, there's an appropriateness to which we interact and communicate, you know, with each other. I think the rules have changed and the lines are even more blurred today than they were even just a couple months ago, given what's going on. But I think the more people are willing and able to speak about their real experience, you know, it's not always about disclosing personal information or, but it is about emotionally being open to sharing a little bit of how we're actually feeling because yeah. that's the stuff that like, I can't always relate to your, your life is different than my life. Your family circumstance is different than mine. And you can share all that and that's great. But sometimes we can share each other, uh, my story, your story, your family, my family life. And, and then it gets into this comparative thing and, oh, well, yours is better than mine or mine's harder than yours or whatever the heck, right? Not that there's anything wrong with any of that, but if you share yeah. with me like how you're actually feeling, that's universal. I'm feeling excited or I'm feeling scared. I'm feeling joyful or I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling, you know, even without a whole ton of story about it, it's like, oh, well, I know what that feels like. Like, and Absolutely. then it becomes, it becomes this universal, like you could literally be halfway around the world, different race, different gender, different background, different family situation, different finance, everything about you could be completely different. And if you're willing to share with me how you're actually feeling, I'm probably going to be able to relate. Not because I know your life and I sit in the same place that you sit and I see the world the same way as you do. No, because I know what it feels like to feel whatever you're feeling. The great, uh, the great common ground of humanity. Right. Yeah. And, and that's why it's like the more personal we're able to be or willing to be, at least with how we feel, the more universal that expression will be and the more it can connect people and bind people. Like that is one thing about this moment right now that's unique of any other moment that we've ever been in. Like there's been things that have happened, you know, here in the U.S., things like 9-11 or if you live in an area where there's a hurricane or a flood or a, you know, a, a fire. I mean, often tragic things. Sometimes it can even be something fun and exciting. You know, you live in Boston. It's like the Red Sox finally won the World yes. Series and people yes. go crazy. And it's like this bonding moment of like, hey, I never thought that would happen. It hadn't happened in our lifetime. We get to celebrate together. It's this sort of shared experience. We've never had a shared experience that's so global. True. That we're all, now again, if, if someone's listening to this and their circumstance could be way different than yours and mine, and that's important to be mindful of, but we're all collectively, in, like I was on a video call this morning with some folks from Israel. Oh, wow. And just, you know, the first part of the conversation, like every conversation right now, I was like, how's it there? What's going on? And they were explaining to me, and I've never actually even been to Israel or spent much time even in the Middle East. So like, I'm fascinated by that just out of curiosity anyway. And then it's like, oh, what's going on? How are things in Israel with respect to the coronavirus and all of that? And so again, that's just bizarre that you can talk to anyone at any place on the planet right now. And this is a, a dominant aspect of their experience is what's happening. Yeah, there's an incredible solidarity around it. Regardless of the yeah. stories, we're each going to have one and we're going to know how to, to talk about it with one another. 
Totally. Well, and that actually speaks to the second pillar in the book, which is about inclusion and belonging. Right. That what's interesting, one of the paradoxes of like, look, understandably, and we could do a whole podcast and series of podcasts on this topic alone and not even really scratch the surface because there's so much to really diving more deeply into diversity and inclusion and belonging. And one of the paradoxes that I've found as I've looked at this myself in a different way over the last couple of years in particular is again, the importance of us being able to understand and appreciate each other's difference and honor that and try to respect it and be curious about it. And especially if you're, you know, your background, your identity, your race, gender, orientation, everything, you know, the more, especially those of us who find ourselves in more dominant privileged positions or positions of power or authority, like being able to be open to listen, to learn, to pay attention, super important. And one of the fundamental paradoxes of this book and of my work is that I really try to focus on a lot is that we're all different. We're all unique. It's important for us to try to understand that as best we can and have empathy and compassion, do whatever we can to invite people, include people. And at the same time, the more we lower that waterline on the iceberg, as I was saying earlier, what we find is that we're way more alike than we're different. There's mm -hmm. all this common ground. There's all this common humanity that we share and like that becomes this fundamental part of like every great team, every great group that we've ever been a part of, for the most part, we felt like we belonged as a member of that family, that group, that team, that whatever, even if it was, you know, fleeting, even if it was for, but it's like, oh, I belong here. I'm, I'm important. I am. And creating that type of environment where people feel like they belong Look, leaders have certain responsibilities in that, but everybody participates in that. And ultimately, it comes down to this sense of there is no them, it's all us. Mm. And that's an easy thing to say or an easy concept to sort of, but it's really hard to practice because the world we live in is filled with us and them and us and them and us and them and us and them, and them all over the place. And we're not even totally conscious of how much we do that all the time. Well, and there's something to be said for this situation that it's not being brought on by another human. Right. Right. So and we that, really can come together for the same reason with the same mission, and that is to to reintegrate in a, in a productive, healthy way. Right. Well, and what's crazy, you know, I just was thinking about it. You're right. There's that part of how we create a deeper sense of usness, of togetherness, of bondedness often is by bonding against something or someone else, yes, right? And it's so, right. And what's interesting, I mean, even yeah, I used the example of the Boston Red Sox as sports, right? As, as a former athlete and someone who thinks about things and loves sports, one of the things, though, that I find um, bizarre about sports is we just sort of arbitrarily root for these teams because that's where I grew up because that's the team my you right. know mom or my dad, you know, it's like, but I've, I'm often joked about it. It's like, you're really rooting for laundry. Like, it's just the uniform. Like, the players change all the time, especially right. nowadays, right? So you're rooting for the Boston Red Sox uniforms, not the actual people because those people are interchangeable. If you live for more than a few years or follow sports for more than a few years, players retire and they get traded and they move around. But it's this thing of like, we bond together. It's like, oh, I'm a Red Sox fan. I hate the Yankees, you know? And you're like, really? You know, and it's, but but again, but it's, is there a way? And I love the togetherness. I always loved the togetherness when I was an athlete of being a part of a team and when, when we would really get to that place. What I did not ever really like and still don't is the otherness 
Mm. of the us against them. And again, I live in the real world. And whether we're talking about sports or business or life or countries or whatever, yes, there are times when it's... But I think what we do, though, is because of our desire to belong and to connect, we think we have to create those others, whoever they are. I mean, you see this in companies all the time. It's like the you know, the sales team against the engineering team or the Boston office against the San Francisco office. It's not against like overt. Sometimes it is, but it's like, really? I don't understand. Like, aren't we all on the same team? And at some level, it's like, again, if we extrapolate that all the way out to humanity, I've always been kind of wired in this way that I've had a really hard time understanding who the them really is. Because up close, whenever I've met human beings in my life, even when they're way different, even when I fundamentally disagree with them at a core level about values or politics or whatever, you name it, when I get up really close and I start listening and I start connecting and I start relating and I start going, oh, you know what, huh, it's really hard to, as the saying goes, hate people up close. It's really hard to otherize people when you get really close and you realize, oh, huh. We're not so different. Yeah, they're like thinking about how they're going to make it through this and how their families are going to do and how they're going to be successful and how they're going to stay safe and healthy and all the things like me. Yeah. You know? Well, and Amy Edmondson uses the quote from uh, Abraham Lincoln, which says, I do not like that man. I must get to know him better. Yes. I love that I know. That Isn't that great? I love yeah. That is great. That is yeah. great. It's like I, I saw a post recently. Someone said, I disagree with you, but I'm listening. Like that's the idea <laughs> yeah. of like – can we do that? And now, look, one of the reasons I wrote this book and called it, we're all in this together and really wanted it to come out right now. I mean, I was more adamant, like I've written, this is my fifth book. I don't love to write. I, it's not my favorite thing. It's a lot of work when I write a book and I'd written bring your whole self to work. My last book, it came out in 2018 and I was like, good, I'm good for a few years. I don't need to write another book, but like three weeks after four weeks after it came out, I had this really strong hit that I was supposed to write another book and write it right now. Oh, about wow. teamwork, about culture, and it was supposed to come out before the election and be called, we're all in this together. And I was like, what? No. I mean, I was literally like arguing with whatever voice that was in my head. I was <laughs> I'm like, no, thank you. Can you go bother someone else? I have something to do. Right. I don't want to do this. And then I, I went through the process and like my, everyone involved was totally into the idea, my agent and my editor and the publisher and all the people, but nobody wanted the title. They're like, no, no, that's, that title's weird. It's too soft. We don't like it. And I was like, no. If I can't call it, we're all in this together, I'm not writing it. Wow. And I'm not usually that high maintenance or that, but I really like, I, I drew a line in the sand and was like, nope, it's my book. I'm doing this or else I'll just forget it. Like I'll do something else. I'll do it later. But I was like, it has to be called this. And then, you know, fast forward to, I wrote the book, it was done and it was scheduled to come out and the pandemic hits. And then everybody is using this phrase. I know it. Well, and for anyone who knows publishing, you don't just get a book out that fast. So you you were doing this well in advance of this moment, this phrase, this time, and yet it's been such a gift. But yeah, so everyone's using this phrase now. And what does that mean for you? (laughs) Well, it's been interesting because it's like, well, I didn't write it because of this. I didn't, there's nothing in the book about a pandemic or about it. Exactly. But I've been, but what I've started to reflect upon is I think one of the reasons why, like we know intuitively when we're faced with a really big challenge, we, not only can we not do it alone, we have to lean on each other. Like yeah. we just know that it's like whenever there's a crisis of any kind. I mean, it, one one of the things is that whole like you know, Mister what did Mister Rogers say? Like look for the helpers. Like all of a sudden, people want to start helping. People reach out to each other. There's not this right. I remember a couple of years ago when you know we had those horrible storms back in 2017, and it was like you'd see all these 
images and these pictures and these people. And it's like, everyone's helping each other and people are getting in boats and like going and saving people out of their homes. And like, there was all this conversation. Like, I don't think they're asking about their political affiliation before they're saving their lives. Right. Mm. It's like the firefighters who ran into the, you know, trade, the world trade center weren't right. asking people like, uh, there weren't any litmus tests of questions of you have to believe this or that, or, uh, you know, agree to that or pray to this God or whatever the heck it was just like, just saving each other. Cause that's do what the right do. thing. Yeah. yeah. And, and I also think even when we're not in the midst of a crisis, so there's a timeliness to not only this phrase, but this idea, I mean, there's, it's, it's timely, but there's also a timelessness that when you think about any great thing you've ever really accomplished or done, it usually, I mean, we do amazing things on our own or we have our own insights, but like we need to, if we're really going to do something extraordinary, it's going to be a collective process. I mean, even the act of like, for me, is this moment, like writing a book, it's like my favorite section of every book I've ever written is the acknowledgement section. That's my favorite part to write. Cause I get oh, to wow. basically just thank everybody and every acknowledgement section of every book I've ever written is really long. Like most, most of my editors voice says it's too long. And I'm like, Nope, sorry. Cause it is, I what just, it, is. Yeah. it is what it is. Like this is a chapter in the book for me. Not only is my work, a lot of it focuses on the, the power of appreciation, but it's like, no, like I literally would not be who I am and would not be in the position that I'm in and would not be able to write a book, any book, if it weren't for an enormous number of people who've helped me do this. Right. And I well, just think and, we know that, like we've all experienced that. And it's true about the collective opportunity we have right now of being yep. in this moment together. I, I'm excited to see, and this sounds strange, but a, a lot of what this podcast is based on is I'm excited to see what the innovation and the stories of resilience are that come out of this. Yeah, I, I am too. And I'm, I'm grateful you're doing this podcast. I'm honored to be on it, but it's, there's Aww. so much, there's so much opportunity. Again, look, it's important that we not sugarcoat it. It's important that we not sort of bypass like simultaneously I'm excited and like, this is really serious and people are yes. losing their lives and their jobs. And like, this is having a significant impact. We're still in the middle of this. We don't know where in the middle we are. Are we still in the early stages of it? Are we literally in the middle? Are we towards the, I have no idea, but and anyone who claims to know exactly how this is playing out, I keep saying they're either crazy or they're lying because I don't think anybody knows because Every There's day. no playbook. There's no playbook no, for this. No, not at all. Well, and that's why yeah. back back to the pillars, and I know the one you said you really wanted to focus on, and I've been you know rambling on about everything else. But the third pillar is about embracing what I call sweaty palm conversations. Yes. And this comes from a conversation that I had with a mentor years ago, and he said to me, Mike, you know what stands between you and the kind of relationships you really want to have with people? I said, What's that? He said, It's probably a ten minute sweaty palm conversation you're too afraid to have. Mm. Well, and it's true. So last week, my husband said, "Hey, how's your week looking?" And I said, "Oh, I've got. Two, I've been. I was reading your book at the time, um, mm -hmm. and I said I've got two sweaty palm conversations coming up." And he said, "What?" <laughs> and I said, "I'll let you know how it goes." And <laughs> it was interesting. So the first sweaty palm conversation I had, I chickened out. Mm, yeah. I didn't do it. And I came downstairs right. and it was lunchtime. And that's the beauty of this time is my husband was right there waiting. How'd it sure. go? <laughs> yep. And I said, I didn't do it. And I am so disappointed and I need to circle back. I'm going to figure out you know, what I want to do next. And then I was more convicted than anything to do the second one better. Yeah. Um, so anyway, tell us more about well, Sweaty Palm Conversations. Well, I mean, look, I love that you shared that because the truth is like Sweaty Palm Conversations are Sometimes they're conflict, sometimes they're feedback, sometimes they're asking for something that we want that we're not sure what the response, it's anything that again, has me think, oh gosh, if I say this, 
Suzanne's not going to like me, or she's going to be upset with me, or this could be a problem, or something bad could happen. So I pause and go, "Eh," and then don't, right? And then sugarcoat it or water it down or just don't say it. We all do it. We all do it. Even those of us that know it's important, we still do it. I still do it. I don't love having sweaty palm conversations. The problem is that when we avoid them and don't have them, what ends up happening is it puts distance between us and other people. It creates a real load on our sort of emotional hard drive, if you will, because now I'm carrying around all of this stuff that I'm not saying or not asking for or not addressing or not dealing with. And so ultimately, like when my mentor said that to me many years ago, he said, you know, Mike, if you lean into those and have those sweaty palm conversations sooner rather than later, you'll build trust, you'll resolve conflicts, you'll talk about the elephant in the room, you'll address things that need to be addressed, like you'll ask for what you want, you'll give feedback, you'll get feedback, like you just... And so it's something that the more we do, the more we practice, the more we build the muscle, and the more we do it with people, if you and I have them with each other, we now then build not only our own individual muscle of being able to have sweaty palm conversations, we know how to have them with each other sooner rather than later. And it just, it benefits everybody. I mean, look, eventually in most relationships, in most situations, the truth ends up coming out at some point. The question is, do we wait for a long time and how painful is the process? Or do we really just kind of get there sooner rather than later? And Right now, on the one hand, it's even harder to have them again because we're disconnected and we don't see each other and wherever people are feeling uncomfortable and vulnerable and scared and all this. And I sort of feel like, gosh, if we're not having them now, mm-hmm. it's just creating all kinds of more chaos and challenge for us on top of the chaos and challenge that already exists. It's true. This, t- this time really does amplify the need for them, but then make it even a little easier to not have them. Totally. Well, and I think, look, one of the things I've learned about them over the years, look, the hardest part of most sweaty palm conversations is literally like the first 10 or 15 seconds. Yeah. It's like me saying, hey, Suzanne, could we talk about this thing? And then I'm I'm feeling a little, you know, whatever. It's like whatever I have to bumble around to actually get into it. I think of it like the metaphor I often think about for myself. It's like, it's like a swimming pool. And I'm not even a big, like, I don't love the pool. I never was a great swimmer, but it's like literally standing on the edge of the swimming pool and the deep end and knowing the pool is going to be cold and it's going to be deep. But I, if we, if the moment we jump in, if you've ever had that experience, it is a little shocking to your system. Like, Oh my gosh, it's freezing. Yeah. And then you have to, you know, if you're not a great swimmer like me, maybe you hit the bottom and then start swimming towards the edge real quick <laughs> to grab on or whatever. But usually once I get in the pool and start moving around, like, yeah, it's cold and yeah, it's a little weird and I'm out of my element, but I'll be okay. And then I start moving around And then I'm in the water and now it's like, okay, let's do this. And way more often than not, like just getting into that conversation, even if we don't get it all resolved and it doesn't end up with a nice, beautiful bow on the end and everyone, you know, metaphorically sort of hugs it out and we're all good. At the very least, we've now pushed past the fear of having the conversation. We've sort of at least addressed it. So the addressing of it often will liberate us a bit. And usually we get some insight into what's going on, where they're coming from. They have some insight into where we're coming from. And very often a pathway to get something resolved or get to a better place opens up. Not, and it doesn't necessarily, I mean, yeah, does it take a little work and is it a little scary and sometimes emotionally challenging? Sure. But the avoiding of it is often the worst part and the most painful and damaging part. 
Mm, I can see that. And I can also see that it gives you a, a deposit into the emotional bank account with someone. Yeah. You know. and, and, and a great way to start any sweaty palm conversation is just tell the truth about how you're actually feeling. Like without mm-hmm. a ton of story and disclaimer, but just like, I'm feeling, I, I want to talk to you and I've been avoiding this conversation and I'm yeah. feeling nervous, but it's important to me. So can we talk? I mean, like something just like that. Again, not like a script and not like a thing to say, but just some version of letting them know, lowering your own waterline on your iceberg. I'm, you know, I've been thinking about this for like a week and I don't know the right way to say it, but can I just say it anyway or whatever? And then it's like, if you come from that emotional, emotionally vulnerable place, energetically, the other person, even on the phone, even on Zoom or Skype or whatever, they will feel it, they will sense it. And we're relational creatures, so we're going to respond often in kind. The mm-hmm. fear is that I go in, I lower my waterline, I get vulnerable, I share, and you like pounce on me or judge me or think I'm an idiot or whatever. Uh, you know, is yeah. is that possible? It's possible. It's happened to all of us. It's right. way more the exception than the rule in these situations. Um, well, and the benefit of what you get out of it, having done it, is far greater than the risk of what you just talked about, too. Totally. And the truth is, if like I go to you and and open up and I'm vulnerable, and you jump down my throat, and like unless you're my boss, and I absolutely 100% or my most important client or my spouse or something, and I'm like so dependent on the relationship, if you really respond that way in that moment, that's a pretty clear indication to me. Like, I don't really want to be in a relationship with you if I can help it because that's not mm. a safe person for me. Do you know what I mean? Like, well, Yeah, it's good data for you about the situation and the person. Totally. Sure. It's like, okay, yeah, let me make sure that I literally protect myself at all costs with Suzanne because she's not safe. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And like, yeah. maybe you're having a low moment. I could forgive you. I could have compassion. But if we're already in a little bit of a conflict about something, I need to address it and I go to address it. And in me just opening up to share about it, you freak out and get really upset and, you know, are super mean to me. Okay. Well, geez, that gave me some really important data, right. About who you are and the nature of our relationship. Yeah. And again, sometimes we're forced back into a situation like that. And again, everyone's uh, emotions are running high these days. So we do have to have some compassion for ourselves and other people. Yeah. But most of the time when we go into those sweaty palm conversation situations, it's not a shock to the other person. And they're usually grateful that we're willing to bring it up and to address it. I had a couple of sweaty palm conversations with some people on my team last week and they were hard, but they were important. And in every case, it was like, thanks. Thank you for bringing this up. I know that was hard, but you know, we get to a deeper level of understanding and empathy for each other when we do that. Yeah, it's true. And it really, it goes back to that you know, leveraging your self-awareness and practicing authenticity and demonstrating the courage. Yeah. Well, and it also leads to, I mean, the fourth pillar, just as we go through the four in the book, is the, the yeah. fourth pillar is about caring about and challenging each other. And one, what that basically means is like the balancing out and the ha- both simultaneously focusing on caring about and appreciating and valuing the people we work with and the people around us. It could be our family, it could be anybody, and also a willingness to challenge them. Yes. And what tends to happen in most environments, like depending on the nature of our relationship with people, we usually sort of err on one side of that equation more than the other. So what I mean by that is like, oh, I'm going to be really sweet and kind and right, which is great to someone I love, to someone I know, to someone I work with, whatever. So, but that's like, that's, and then maybe that's part of my personality. I'm just, I'm really positive, encouraging, right? So this person knows that I care about them or the people on our team, we all know that we care about each other. That's fantastic. That's fundamental. That needs to be in the place. If we over index on that, if you will, and then under index on, do we challenge each other? Do we really push each other? Do we, right? 
then you can create an environment or a situation where everyone feels all warm and fuzzy and it's all really nice and it's great, but people aren't going to be pushed out of their comfort zone and really challenged to be their best, Mm. which by the way, we all want, even though it can be a little scary, we all want to be challenged. We all want to be pushed, right? We want people to care about us enough to say, I love you. You're great. And I see something even greater for you. And it's like, whoa, really? Okay. If on the flip side, I'm in an environment, especially in the business world sometimes, where people are really pushing and challenging each other and there's a real high standard and we got to do better and we got to do the best. And right? it's like, okay, that can work in the short term to really get people motivated and light a fire under their you-know-what. But over time, that's not sustainable. That's not super healthy and nourishing. We all of a sudden feel like human doings, not human beings. And mm. like, they only care about me when I produce results. And you know what I mean? Like, Yes. Yeah. And so... We, so we have to then be able to do both of those things simultaneously. And to your point earlier, when we make those deposits in the emotional bank account, people know that, right, if I know you care about me and you value me and you've made that clear and demonstrated that, and I really feel that, when you come and challenge me, when you come and give me that feedback, when you come and say, hey, Mike, that wasn't okay, or that's no, that's not to the standard by which we need it, or I expect more from you, or here's what I see, or whoa, I'm less likely to be super defensive and be like, whoa, what are you talking about? How dare you? I'm going to listen to you because I know, you know what? She cares about me and values me and wants me to be my best. She's probably not saying this just to be mean and rude. She's saying it because it's important. Yes. And if we're here looking for a similar outcome and we're, we are, not to use a pun, but we're in this together, there's, right. there is the, uh, the both sides are, are really looking to support one another. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then the question becomes, then it's a matter of, you know, sometimes it's a matter of personality and style and authenticity and sort of how that goes, you know, if it's coming from a genuine place, you know, everybody's wired a little differently. Mm -hmm. So what it looks like for me to push and challenge someone may look different for you or for someone else. Um, but again, like you can, you can sense the, 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 the truth of it, the depth of it, of where it's actually coming from. And I think that, you know, that makes a big difference. Like I've been, I've been obsessed like a lot of other sports fans because there's no sports on right now. I'm watching the Michael Jordan documentary and there's a lot of, right. He's an interesting dude, right? He was like one of the greatest athletes of all time. One of just this extraordinary, I mean, people literally call people the Michael Jordan of, which means you're like the best at what you do, right? (laughs) Yes. But part of what's coming out of the documentary is like how intense he was as a player and how he really pushed everybody on the, on his team Sometimes to the point where it was, oh, like a little bit much and people had it, right? But hearing a lot of the interviews from his teammates, there was this sense of like, Michael was intense. He wasn't always like super fun to be around necessarily, but you knew that like he cared about you and cared about winning so much that like he was going to get up in your face if he needed to. And there was a little bit of intimidation, but more of a motivation that came from that of like, if he's that passionate and he's working that hard and he's that committed and he's our leader because he's our best player and maybe the greatest player of all time, like maybe I can push myself even harder and further. And so, you know, again, I don't pretend to be Michael Jordan and most of us aren't, right? But it's like, right, right. but he had to do it in his own unique, authentic way that resonated with his teammates. And, you know, and, you know, you can argue one way or the other and whether you even pay attention to basketball or not, like the guy won six NBA championships you know, not alone, obviously had a team around him and coaches and everything, but like, you know, it was a pretty extraordinary career and he was able to figure out, and the journey of the documentary actually shows he went from being this extraordinary individual player to learning more about how do you empower your team and how do you get everybody else involved? Because even if you're super talented, 
you can't win the game or win the championship all by yourself every time. Like you have to rely on your teammates. Yes, we have big, bold goals that require us to work together and collaborate. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, your book is such a gift during this time. We are relying more and more on technology, and yet mm. the human skills that you talk about in your book are incredibly important, even more so mm. as we navigate this combination of connecting while being apart. Yeah. So. Well, thank you. Well, and it reads like a story. It's really incredibly read, and yet it's concrete and actionable. So it was fun for me to say, my husband's name is Jeff, to Jeff, hey, Jeff, I got to go. I got to go work now. Well, what are you working on? <laughs> I'm reading a book. <laughs> so well, thank you for cool. that. Absolutely. And, well, thanks for reading it and being being engaged in the in the material. Oh, it was fantastic. And and I'd love to ask, as we come through this, what is something that you hope will be different as a result of everything that we're going through? That's a great question. You know, I think <laughs> there's a number of things. Um, one of the things that I hope that we keep from this experience and bring with us on the other side of it is the perspective. Mm. You know, just the, like my Samantha, our 14 year old said to me a number of weeks ago, Hey dad, you know, what's going to be really cool. when this is all over. I said, what honey? She said, we're going to appreciate so many little things that we didn't appreciate before. Yeah. And that's my hope is that, you know, life does get back to some sense of normal, whatever that means on the other side of this and things will change. But ultimately if we can keep the perspective of how much we can appreciate the simple things to seeing a friend and going out to lunch and giving someone a hug and going to a concert or just walking around the mall or whatever the heck it is. I mean, the little things that most of us, all of us took for granted, you know, and didn't even realize we were taken for granted. If we can have some sense of conscious appreciation for those things, I think that'll be really cool. That's great. Well, I really appreciate the time, the insight, and it's been a true pleasure for me to talk with you today, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode. I'd love to share your stories to help all of us come back stronger than we were before. For more information and to contact us, visit www.humansoptimized.com.